Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I can only apologize for the lack of Formula One. With the best will in the world, we cannot bring Spa-Francorchamps any closer for you. However, what we can do is continue what we were doing last week, which is to talk some driver skills, and we'll bring you the second part of uh, what I assume is a great tech discussion between Matt Summers, F1, and also Craig Scarborough. I, I definitely have listened to all of it. I mean, I'm producing the shows as a silent producer, so you, you, you've got to hope that I was sitting there paying attention and learning something, but I'm not making any promises. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Last time out, we talked about some general kind of driving points so we can appreciate the things we see on TV. We preached a lot about getting involved, going down to a kart track, doing some sim racing and maybe just even playing a, a racing video game so that you can you can just appreciate what you're seeing on the TV screens. First among our our, our champion racing drivers is Brad Philpot. Brad, I don't mean to say you're my favorite, but you know, you've done a lot of race car things. I might not be your favorite, but I am the best. I'm the best one this week. You're not the driver I want. You're the driver I need. Yeah. 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 Be- nice to be back, Spanners. Looking forward to talking about um, handling deficiencies yes. caused by various problems. Yeah, I think we're going to go to non-ideal conditions, like, for example, how Kyle Power holds his steering wheel wrong in a go-kart. How's it going, Kyle? Very well, thanks. Glad to be back again. And yes, I have a very unusual hand position in a in a cart, I have to say, in cars, it's a bit more traditional. Mm. But in a cart, I have a very untraditional way I hold the wheel. Why? You just hold it wonky. So one hand high, one hand low. 
Yes. Um, much like Alex, I'd never had any tuition. I started quite late. It just, <laughs> I, I just plonked my hands on the wheel. I drove out the pit lane and that's what felt natural. And I didn't realize until I started doing quite well in certain karting championships that a few people started to comment when they, <laughs> I used to have a helmet camera, a few videos on my YouTube channel. A few people started commenting that you've got a really unusual way of holding the wheel. And I'd never noticed. And there's only a couple of us around sort of championship time who actually done the same thing, but it is very unusual and technically incorrect. I mean, yeah, I'm not going to criticize you, Carl, but it's kind of like how alternative medicine that's demonstrated to be effective is just called medicine. Alternative hand position is, is just wrong, isn't it? It's, you're doing it wrong. I'm, I'm not going to criticize you, Carl, but let me compare you to, to one you. of the most easily un you know provably false things in the world kyle you're not going to stand there and take that no i didn't mean it quite like uh alternative medicine. alternative karting. don't do a 0.00 milliliters of hand position in my um in my medicine but um it works for me it doesn't hold me back i don't feel like i'm i'm held back for it at all so um but so, you, you, so you actually it's absolutely fine like brad can say what he wants and he won't hurt my feelings yeah, he said crying. But you have said an interesting thing to me, which is you tend to pull your steering wheel rather than, than push it, which is interesting. In my sim setup uh, earlier in the week, uh, my family was away and I got to do quite a lot of sim racing. Not only did my knee start hurting, but actually I found my thumbs hurting from <laughs> pushing up and I, I ended up modifying my, my technique to, to try and pull it more. Yeah, it's strange. Technically, you're supposed to push the wheel obviously it's a mixture of both the hands but your dominant force should be pushing the wheel the way it goes so if you're going into right hand your left hand will kind of be pushing particularly in a in a cart maybe not necessarily in cars but for me i end up pulling on it more now that's interesting and uh, we've also got alex van jean here who also has a similarly eccentric driving style instead of pressing your brake pedal to slow down you usually just slam into the cart in front See, I was just going to say hello for being ridiculed by something Brad might say, but now you've picked on that. Um, you know, if the, if the officials don't see it, then whatever. No, yeah, it's, like, um, it's like a it's yellow a, flag. Uh, uh, <laughs> same as yellow flags. Don't get me started. Yellow flags, Bradley. Um, now, when it comes to when it comes to things like that, I am aggressive, but when it comes to karting, you can get away with certain things, and especially when. They're rental carts and there's big bumpers around the outside and it's an indoor circuit. Sometimes not having any contact at all almost isn't possible. Yeah. But as we can tell from my lace, my most recent exploits in Formula 3 on iRacing, I don't really hit anybody. Okay, that's really interesting. So look at a track like Monaco where the only way to overtake is to be quite bullish one of the one of the the best overtaking moves at Monaco in recent times was uh, was um, Jules Bianchi on the inside of Kobayashi, was it into into Raskas the final turns and, and full on clouted him. Yeah, but you have to like <laughs> judge it to make sure that you're wheel to wheel. But that was measured. That was he went for that. Absolutely perfect, and it's that it, and and that is exactly it. Making sure it's wheel to wheel. Formula One cars can take contact in the right points. <laughs> Um, and that is absolutely perfect. And it's kind of expected at Monaco. Remember Verstappen having the lunge at Hamilton in 2019, I believe it was, when Hamilton was trying to hang on with the dead tyres. Yeah. Hamilton luckily saw him and, and they made contact, but luckily it was just wheel to wheel. So it was absolutely fine. Um, yeah. Of course, wheel to wheel cannot be fine sometimes, but generally in low speed corners in Monaco, 
it's generally fine. Yeah. Do we need a trigger warning when you talk about stuff like that? No, no, that's fine. I, I think you're referring <laughs> to a couple of weeks ago where we had Lucas joining us from the Dutch Race Reporter podcast. And I, I just want to address that because he actually came in in for a lot of stick from from Dutch race fans in that he like he wasn't aggressive enough towards us. I, I just want to say that Lucas was clearly upset and angry when talking about the Silverstone, Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton uh, 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 contact. But he was a very polite guest, Brad. He, he wasn't going to come on here and just start punching us in the face. And when I, I've got an invitation to go on their podcast as well, I'm not going to simply go on there and just be the most fanatic Lewis Hamilton fan in the world. So I listened to that episode whilst I was doing some some tyre test driving. Um, and I I have to say, I could definitely sense without yes. really watching any kind of video that he was very, although he was being polite, he was very angry yeah. that Hamilton was at fault. And he put the blame, I'd say, 100% uh, on Hamilton, if not close to that. Yeah. And I was... I, I did notice that the Dutch fans still didn't think that was enough. Nope. No, it was 150% Lewis's fault and yeah. nothing less. I was, I, I was uh, a little bit disappointed that I understand the passion from all sides, but I'm disappointed that we brought a Max Verstappen fan from a Max Verstappen-centric supporting podcast and he still got uh, abuse in our YouTube chats and on, on Twitter. Uh, I think Lucas was absolutely brilliant and absolutely gracious and I, I hope we can do that more because I don't want a war with Max Verstappen fans. I really, I'm getting distracted from the driver chat, I know. But I don't want a war with Max Verstappen fans. I want to enjoy the sport with similarly passioned fans. So I'm hoping we can do more with those guys. I like what they do. They are, they are a professionally put together show. They've got good audio quality that doesn't annoy me. Even though it was in Dutch and I couldn't follow it, I found myself listening to it because the audio quality was good. And we'll have a link uh, to them in our show notes below. But back to uh, some driver masterclass stuff. We're talking about driving in less than ideal conditions. And one thing that has come up quite a lot, in fact, increasingly, I would say, as we've come into a much more aero-dependent formula over the decades, is is wind, Brad. And so people talking about, uh, well, you know, Portimao is very kind of wind-dependent, Silverstone generally as well, because it's just a big open airfield. How much of an effect does wind really have? And how can you possibly plan your race around wind? When we're doing eye racing and I've got to get through a 20-lap race, I have a plan. I can just about deal with the tyres being less grippy. I can just about deal with tyres warming up and going, oh, I have to I have to brake a little bit earlier until the tyres warm up and then a little bit earlier again as the tyres start to fade. How would you just deal turn to turn, day to day with the wind? How would you even know which way the wind was going in a car? Yeah, so this is a this is a very difficult subject for a driver. Um, fortunately, or unfortunately, depending how you want to look at it, I've not raced a lot in downforce dependent yeah. championships. Um, in the championships I've raced in, generally saloon cars, the only effect wind will have is if it's extremely strong in one direction it might make it a little bit easier to brake for a corner because you know you've effectively got a bit of a, an air brake in coming towards you if you've yeah. got a headwind or, or a little bit harder to stop for a corner if it's behind you but in general it's you don't notice it so much apart from some some light buffeting um in that or, case or in that case notice- is it, is it is it just as easy as okay well the wind is against me therefore i just brake a bit 
later is it, is it just a case of doing that or is it more complicated you might not even notice yeah. you might just do the normal things where when you break hard um, maybe you notice that you're slightly going too deep and therefore you'll just break slightly earlier the next time what you tend to notice more is your top speed changing so in the nerve at the uh. nurburgring for example you've got the dotting of her which is the really long straight um, near the end of the lap it's, it's very, very long. And if you've got a headwind, you'll notice a significant drop in top speed. It will then very much put an onus on slipstreaming. It mm. means that the slipstream effect is much bigger. So even we're not even talking about downforce dependent cars yet, but even at this point, there is some effect which you have to take into account. So being the lead car in a train, for example, is much harder when there's a, a strong headwind on the long straight, if, if there happens to be one particular long straight. When you're talking about downforce dependent cars, where the speed that you can carry through a corner is dependent on the airspeed yeah. over the wings of the car, suddenly that's another factor to take into account. And you're you're right when you say how how can a driver know what the speed yeah. is, what the what the wind speed is, what the direction is? Obviously you can look at if there's any wind socks around, quite often racetracks are on airfield, so there are is a neon orange wind sock. Um, showing you which direction the wind is, and you can therefore just choose to judge your your entry speed slightly differently depending on if you've got a headwind, you can carry more speed in. There's a higher airspeed over your wings. Uh, if there's a tailwind, you have to be a little bit more careful. You can also have the team on the radio telling you um, they could be monitoring that for mm. you. So there's a couple of different ways, but definitely a very, very tricky element of driving a, a downforce-dependent car. And, and is it linear, Brad? Is it like, so just the more wind you have heading towards you you can go oh wow i've got 10 miles an hour more i can assume i've got more grip or i can act like i've got two turns more on my front wing a little bit like that it's linear it's it's in the same way that going faster you know when you're traveling at yeah, higher speed would, yeah. the downforce has a greater effect it's it's the same as that so impossible to know absolutely accurately unless it's a very consistent wind so if it stays the same for a, a long period without like a drop, if it's not gusting, if it's just a constant wind, obviously you can then learn it. Um, but definitely not something that you could confidently, um, you know, put a figure on. Yeah. And with the with the wind thing, and is it linear? By nature, wind is not linear. But as Brad <laughs> said, it's, yeah, it's exactly like if you have more wind, you are going to have more grip if it's coming at you in a front sense. Going going with a tailwind, I felt this in the few single-seater runs I've done, it will give you rear instability. I'd never actually felt it before until it actually actually happened. Um, but with Formula One cars and, Form- and Formula One drivers, they must be incredibly sensitive because remember Ferrari put down Carlos Sainz's crash in Q2 just at the last race down to a freak gust of wind, a tailwind as he hit. <sighs> As he head into the last corner, lost the rear, put him straight into the barriers. He's already on the edge, so a gust of wind can make the difference from staying on track. What about what about being in a barrier? What about the helicopter? What about Lance Stroll yes. talking about the downwash from a helicopter? And I, unfortunately, I've had a terrible life that has involved me far too often being in the downwash of a helicopter. And those things are blinking powerful. And uh, like Brad, can you imagine just being in a downforce dependent car? And, and having a helicopter overhead, it's amazing that they're that sensitive. Yeah, uh, that would, must be absolutely horrible. He thought there was an, a, a car problem immediately, didn't he? Yeah. he? He felt something was wrong in that moment. 
Um, and it's obvious when you see the footage back that it's the that it's the helicopter. But yeah, Carlos Sainz, it, that issue that he had doesn't even have to be a gust of wind. It can just be that you're rotating the car through a corner, which involves going through a wind direction change because it, it might be that you're facing, you know, you have a headwind on the entry and mid corner, suddenly that downforce that you've been relying on, you've been using that extra wind speed over your wings, um, it's suddenly gone. And so the speed that you could previously carry through the corner has changed as the angle of your car changes. Mm. Um, and, and basically impossible to judge that. I think in that example, he was actually going slower through the corner than he had done on a previous lap and the car just let go. And so, yeah, wind must be a, a real nightmare in, in cars like a Formula One car. And I believe this was some of the theory and logic behind banning the big shark fins, you know, the big square panels on the back of the engine yes. cover going towards they the rear wing. They looked cool, though. They looked really cool. I really, really like them. They were perfect. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just made the cars incredibly sensitive. And once they got past a certain yaw angle and they lost it, the wind would essentially use that as a sail and then yeah. just keep on pushing them around, which made it really, really difficult. We hear George Russell mention it quite a lot. Um, we're going back to the sort of the wind and the blustery conditions the williams car and the way how it generates the downforce it's not very good at obviously reattaching the airflow so it's blustery and inconsistent wind conditions the car must be changing grip corner to corner and that's where they really really suffer Uh, and of course in nascar they use that same effect for safety purposes so they have things that i think when when they detect the car isn't straight something flips up and and that stops the car from like flipping so that that effect is 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 well known but i think brad the the way that that downforce affects us from a sporting point of view is following there's a lot of chat with following as much as they talk about 2022 i'm sure scarbs and uh and summers will will tell us whether following will be more or less affected i really do feel like as long as you as long as you make formula one an aero dependent sport part of your design will actively be to mess with the car behind. So the teams actively want to disrupt the airflow behind. Is there any chance you can give us a quick 101 on why the car behind in Formula 1 is struggling? So Sebastian Vettel behind Esteban Ocon in Hungary, the faster car, it's a hard track to overtake, but he was losing a lot of downforce. So in a way, it's it's similar to just having a, a tailwind. We've got less active air that we can use. But it's kind of worse because it's, it's disrupted air. It's air that's not flowing in the way that we would design the front wing to be. But yeah, at the start of the race, there's only one car that doesn't have any disrupted air, and that's the car up front. Yeah, I mean, you've done a really good job of explaining it anyway. Yes. There's, not, there's not a lot that I need to add. There are, there are a couple of aero effects from following a car. One is a benefit, which is the slipstream which is the exact same, it's the same thing that's happening, which is then also a negative when you get to a corner. Um, In a straight line, you want the turbulent air, you want a hole to have been punched in front of you, so there's less drag for you. And then in turn, when you get to a corner and you're reliant on that air passing over your wing at a certain speed to give you the same grip as the car in front, it's not there because it's already been used. Mm. It's not traveling at the same speed as it was when the car in front encountered it. And so you cannot carry the same speed through a corner. You've got a a large percentage reduction in your, in your downforce level. And, and you can see this from watching other series, which aren't so downforce dependent things which don't have a front wing, any kind of saloon car. And they are generally able to follow each other in long packs 
and they're, they're basically only getting the benefit. They're only getting the, the drag reduction from the slipstream without any, any added negative effect of, of a downforce reduction. So Alex, we're talking racecraft now. And so you and I have been uh, racing in sims, in, in F3, on iRacing, where our racing, which I know, I know it's not the same as, you know, going around a racetrack at a thousand miles an hour, but the downforce effect is there. It is simulated as well. And we had a very strange occurrence, didn't we, at Cota, where I, where I had a little bit more pace than you, just this one time, just this one time. And all that did was to serve to highlight how much better at racing in general you are. So this racecraft, when you're having to follow and defend and, and using this this lack of downforce behind a car, it's amazing. You can follow a, a slower car and really struggle to overtake. And it's a completely different ball game trying to pass in that situation. Yeah, it's why you see a lot of drivers, especially Fernando Alonso, he does it quite a lot, which is when he's following another car, he does everything he possibly can to use a different line to the car in front. Yeah. Because what that's doing is it's giving him clean air to get a bit more downforce. So he's trying different things, which is why on circuits like, for example, at Kota, where you have many different lines through corners, as we discovered this week, um, someone like Fernando will do very well there when following somebody else because he would duck in and out of the car in front of him to get that clean air, to get the downforce, to then hopefully eventually get the benefit. Uh, Yeah, and I I wonder with with tracks like that, like are they thinking about spewing the dirty air behind them? Are they thinking about defending? Obviously, they're trying to break the toe as they go down the straights. And you can use that to your advantage, Alex, because like if you know a car behind you isn't going to get the same turn in as you. You can, I don't know, you can overslow into a corner, for example, knowing that you've got all your downforce and they don't have any of theirs. As far as driving differently to give dirty air, you taking the optimum line is a disadvantage to the car behind you because you then have to make them do something else. Um, As far as breaking the toe is concerned... It drives me nuts when I see people weaving backwards and forwards down the straight. I don't like it. I don't think no. it looks great. It's also a huge, huge. I find it very, very dangerous. I don't, I don't like it. Um, I, you, for example, you won't see me do it very often. What I'll tend to do is let someone get close, and then I'll start to move over, um, and usually either block their route of attack or just try to pinch them into the corner to compromise their exit into the corner rather than just weave aimlessly down the straight, which to be fair, when you start weaving down the straight, you cost yourself speed anyway. Exactly that. If I could just follow on for what Alex said, yeah, the, the, the crazy weaving in a straight line, we saw a bit of it during our map championships on the stream. Um, it slows you down. I'm, you can do it. You can do little micro changes just to try and trip up the pit, the person behind and deprive them of a tiny bit of slipstream. But generally, you tend to just hurt yourself a little bit more when you, when, 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 when you do that. Don't do the Max Verstappen thing of moving late in the braking zone. Wait till they get almost close to you, then make your decision, and then go to that side, and then just make sure you outbreak them. How hard can it be? The next disadvantage I would like to talk about is having a rubbish car. So, when do you fight? When do you yield? How do you defend when you know the driver behind you is is fast? Fernando Alonso being a great example. So Fernando Alonso was holding off Lewis Hamilton for 10 laps. He was never going to hold him off for 20. But, you know, we know Fernando Alonso likes to race. I don't think he was ever going to give up. He said he was doing it to help Max Verstappen. We all thought it was to help 
Esteban knock on. Uh, Alex, there are times at all levels of karting where you find yourself either in a duff cart, the engine is slow, or you find yourself with some extra ballast. It does make it interesting because the skill of the driver can make up for a deficiency in a car to a certain extent. It all depends on the circumstances. So, for example, again, I'm going to go back to our race on Friday on Friday evening. Um, at the start of the second race, I was quite near the front of the grid. Championship leader Danny Henney was behind me. And quite early on, he caught up to me and I let him go into... Into yeah. uh, down down the back straight to let him then go and attack the cars in front and then hopefully I could get involved. There then ended up being an accident and I benefited from it. Then when Danny caught me back up later on in the race with the last two or three laps we were fighting for a podium, I defended right. with every single element of I of possible skill that I had because it was a circumstance. I'm not going to hold Danny off for nine laps of Kota. It's just not going to happen. And all I'm going to do is waste time for yeah. me, let cars behind me catch, and then put me under more pressure. So let the faster guy co- go, follow them through, hope they get in some sort of um, altercation in front, which did happen. And then at the end, <laughs> when you're then holding to fight a decent position, then you can go super defensive. This is this is like a real big problem in F1, though, because so many times in F1, it's just not worth fighting. And, and I think Brad, like, really, all other factors aside, forgetting that he's now Verstappen's wingman, th- there's no real point in Alonso fighting him if he, you know, he could have cost himself yet more places. Well, you do what you can, because at that track, he might have been able to hold him off. He okay. held him off for... A long time yeah and that could have continued if lewis hadn't found a way through if the if the circumstances hadn't worked out that that lewis managed to get through there was a realistic chance that alonso could have held him off to the end so it's just about making that judgment call and and there might be another benefit in that situation even if even if uh, hamilton did ultimately get past him alonso had done enough damage to to prevent hamilton from beating alonso's teammate in other situations, you just have to make the call. You have to know how much am I risking my own race mm. by fighting. If this is a 24-hour race, I, I just finished a 24-hour kart race at the weekend. We did not have the kart to fight for the front. We ultimately finished third in our class. Yeah. Had I been fighting the fast guys at the beginning of the race, we wouldn't have finished third. We might have come sixth or something yeah. because I would, have slowed, I would have slowed us down to the point where it's such a long race. Eventually this other cart is going to get through, whether it's at the pit stops or on track. And you've got to look at the longer game. Alonso defending from Hamilton was far enough into the race that he did have a realistic chance of, of maintaining that position. He just didn't in the end. Long shot, Kyle. Oh, very much. Uh, Alonso very much had an agenda from his team. <laughs> probably screaming yeah. in his ear saying, do not let him through. Cause he, well, that, yeah. that, pretty much run the race for Rockon, apart from Rockon's amazing own skill of putting himself in that position yeah. anyway was incredible but that really really helped him out but absolutely what both Brad and Alex have said is exactly spot on and I do this a lot in my own racing that if I know somebody is so much faster than me behind they're going to have a pop at me I will let them through like I'm one of the faster guys in the championship and even if I've got Danny coming up behind me who is the fastest guy in the championship early on I'll move over and let him through because I know it's beneficial to me. Do it if it's beneficial to you, but I will fight him in the 
in the final laps. But a slightly different sort of position to that is if you know somebody is quicker and they're going to have a pop and you're slightly closing on the car in front, more often than not, it's beneficial to not fight them too hard. Let them make the move, but don't defend against them because then they can help you catch the car in front. That is exactly what I did in our final race. It was only two laps left, but I know I knew the guy behind Luca was quicker than me. The guy in front, we were both catching. If we started to fight, we'd lose all hope for the win. And I knew he'd attack me. So I didn't defend. I let him go through with two laps left for a podium position, knowing that we'd all end up together with a chance of winning on the final lap. So it's the short-term loss for a long-term gain. The other issue you've got in Formula One is fighting hard destroys tyres. And when we're in a very tyre-dependent formula, like Formula One, if you are at the beginning of your stint, and you fight really, really hard, you're not going to be able to extend your stint to do that one stop or make that two stop strategy work. So you do need to think about certain things like that. It's like when um, uh, Lando was ahead of Lewis, uh, Austria, he eventually let Lewis go because fighting him just kind of wasn't worth it. Um, he held on for as long as he could. But then when it got to a point where actually it's just going to affect his strategy towards the end, he did the same thing in the first race at Austria as well. Yeah. Um, just decided enough's enough. I've, done, I've, I've, I've got the gap that I want. I can now start to preserve the car. Three you go Perez, three you go Bottas. And, and that, was, that, that, helped, that helped Lando get those amazing results that he got in Austria. Yeah. And how many times have we heard the engineers on the radio saying, we are not racing them. They are yeah. not in our race. Don't bother don't lose time just let them through and that is true that 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 logic is true through all forms of racing so uh, the next thing i want to talk about uh, as an impedance is confidence now confidence is a preference commonly known in the voyeur that is known as park life but in racing terms it really can affect a driver dependent on where they're at so on the on the previous two weeks ago uh, uh, matt was talking about ocon being brilliant just generally ocon fosi But he was talking about um, Ocon not actually finding it harder out the front. He was finding it easier because there was less to think about. He only had to think about uh, Vettel. But Brad, at my level of racing, which is my most competitive racing that I ever do, is the Mist Apex Championships and then also the, the sim racing we do also. As soon as I find myself in a position I'm happy with, I start to get shaky brake foot. I start to really question every breaking point. I start to question every time I turn in. And, and, and confidence can be an amazing thing. So I want to talk about confidence in your machinery, but also general confidence when you're driving. As a, as a professional, as a top-level level driver, do you, do you get affected by where you are in a race, by race circumstance? Does that ever mechanically affect you? Yes. I think it, the biggest thing in the examples you, got, you just gave then was how much you care about this result. (laughs) Yes. So finishing at the front of a a missed apex event, if it's not something that you're going to do regularly or not something you think you're capable of doing regularly, if this is an unusual position for you to find yourself in, that's hard to get to again, then you get these... Do they call them the yips? Yeah, well, Um, yeah, yips is something slightly different. So yips is when you just, you suddenly can't do like a thing that you would ordinarily often do. Like, so for example, for, for a golfer, it would be shanking where instead of hitting it on the club face, you're suddenly hitting it right by where the shaft of the the club is and, and hitting it inexplicably past your own legs. 
Okay, so it's not quite the yips. It's almost a precursor. It's almost uh, you're just you're almost winding in the pace. You're tightening up because yeah. you're. I think that's more. Yes, care so much about this particular result, and I've definitely been in that position myself. I'm trying to think of an example right now, but um, generally, if you if you've had a lot of success in the past, or if you've done bigger things than the thing you're in, yeah, that's less of a problem. Um, Lewis Hamilton leading the Hungarian Grand Prix won't have had anything like as much of a sensation of pressure and stress as maybe Ocon would have done at the end of that race because Ocon hasn't won a Formula One race yet. This is potentially career defining. If he screws up, then, then he's wasted this golden opportunity and he knows it. And no matter how hard you try and block that out of your mind, he will have been thinking it. If you've, if it's something that you're, you're very comfortable with, you're comfortable with your pace, yeah. you're comfortable with your position, you win all the time, then it, then it doesn't affect you as much. So it's very, very situational. See, Kyle, the, the, the example I'm thinking of is George Russell, was it in 2020, was it, was it Portimao when he was set to make his first points and they were weaving under the safety car and he was in a high position and then he suddenly just dropped it? No, it wasn't, it was Mugello. Mugello. I yeah. think it was Mugello, and it's those sorts of things. It's a, a thing he does. Oh, all, so it's Imola. A thing he does all the time. Are you sure it was Imola? I remember it being on a downhill section. Okay, anyway, he was in a great position. We're under the safety car. He's weaving, which all F1 drivers can do. Suddenly, gets too much throttle and puts it in a wall. Yeah, it can happen, and I very, I very much would describe it as the yips. I've sure. had it myself because when you suddenly end up through luck or skill or a miracle you're in the lead and you and you suddenly dawns yeah. upon you whether it's real life i've had this in real life and in the sim like um you're like oh my god this is mine to throw away now yeah all i have to do is just drive as i know i can drive and get it through to the end yeah. that's what i call the yips because then you tighten up and then you forget to how to do exactly what you were trying to do and it's what i found most impressive and i remember i think it was 2017 in mexico Max Verstappen had like a miracle start or a 2018 took the lead and he made his famous comment of simply, simply lovely <laughs> on the radio. And he was so calm because he could, he got into the lead. That is a sign of a great driver because he knew sure. he wasn't going to cock it up. And basically, so for someone like me, I'd be like, Oh my God, Oh my God, I'm going to ruin it. This is all wrong. And my heart would just go through my, like, into my throat and I would completely throw it away and just lock up and get the yip. So it's a sign of a great driver and Ocon. That was what was really impressive about Ocon. Yeah. He was just absolutely calm. But as Brad said, Ocon, he's a fantastic driver. He's won championships. Good. He is no, no stranger to leading in high pressure situations. So he's better to deal with it. But if you put muggins like yourself or me in, then we're going to go to bits. Yeah. It's, I've got, I've got a good example. When I was, um, for the years that I've been karting, you know, and we've always joked about me being a little bit on the heavier side. Um, <laughs> on the one season that I did where I was kind of bang on the weight. Um, remember that one was, time? Oh my God. Remember that one time before COVID ruined every, anyway. Um, when I was on my, when I was on my heavier cycle and if I found myself in a high up position that probably I shouldn't have been in based on where I was pace wise relative to what I was doing, I'd struggle to hold positions and I'd find myself going ultra defensive because I didn't have the confidence to push myself forward. And in in the season when I was at the correct weight, I had none of that. If I was leading, I would lead and I would, and I, and I wasn't worried about being overtaken by anybody behind because I had the confidence that I was faster and I could do things. And I won more races and more overall days that season than I've ever won. 
See, you'll all yell at me now because you're all racers and I'm not. But like, if I am faster than someone and I catch up to them, I tend to kind of go, ah, it's all right. Ah, I'm happy here. No, no, that, I mean, I don't want to get in their way. They'll probably overtake me straight back anyway. <laughs> and that's the difference. And, and that is completely confidence. And I have shouted at you yeah. many, many times yeah. for this before because you're finding more and more pace the more and more you do it. But racecraft isn't something you can just... You can practice racecraft, but it's also an instinctive thing. You have to kind of realise there's a gap. Where can I make, you know, this is or you spot something a couple of laps ahead. It's like, right, this person does this into this corner. I'm quicker here. How can I make sure I'm on their tail for that corner so I can exploit that? No, over, not many overtakes are done in the spur of the moment. Most of them are done while you have to set them up. Mm. Kyle. So we're talking about confidence purely in a sort of a, um, a racing sort of situation sense. But and this is quite true in Formula One as well. And I believe we've seen this over the past couple of years, but. Confidence always extends to the actual driving experience. Are you confident in the car? Are you confident you can put that on the line in a fast corner and the rear end isn't going to step out? Now, this is quite a huge thing because it's easy for us sitting in the sim and just turning around. There is no fear factor. There's no G-force. When you get into a proper single seater with downforce, it all of a sudden becomes very real. And then you find that your lines you could take on the sim you don't have the bravery to do that in real life and you don't have the confidence. And if you have a couple yeah. of rear end snaps, it destroys your confidence. And I have a perfect example of this. This was my very first experience a few years ago in a downforce car. I had a horrible first experience in it, had a couple of really big spins in fast corners and I didn't know why I span. I didn't put a wheel on the grass. I'd, it just went. And it was when I was trying to build confidence in the downforce and that destroyed my confidence. So when I kept going back and it took, a good two or three extra sessions after that to regain my confidence in the car to be able to believe believe in it. And now imagine what a Gasly in the second Red Bull seat is thinking yeah. when the car's very difficult to drive. Max Verstappen's amazing and he can drive it, but Gasly maybe can't. He's getting rear end snaps. So all of the second Red Bull drivers have complained of this issue. Yep that they may not have the confidence in the car. And now Red Bull brutal with them. They're like, well, Max can do it. You must be able to do it. And it must be such a horrible feeling when you have people like us sitting here, you don't really, really understand, criticizing yeah. him for not doing it. And they yeah. don't, they're going into 180 mile an hour corner and don't know whether the rear is going to snap or not. That sort of confidence can destroy a driver. And as much as Perez has won a race and people think he's done enough, he's probably going to get another contract. Look at, look at Silverstone with the qualifying race. You know, he still managed to, to turn himself around. Alex? But the opposite of what Kyle said is also true because I'm, my first experience, proper experience on a track was in an M3. Funnily enough, Brad was sat next to me at this point and I'd never, ever got a car sideways before in, ah. at this point and never got a real car sideways before and went through a corner, all of a sudden got it sideways, held it, and it was the <laughs> most amazing feeling ever. So then I was much happier to go faster, carry more speed because I knew... I could hold it. So it's where it's the equals and opposites. Where if you do something and you feel a bit, all of a sudden you back off. But if you go through, you do something and it works, you're like, wow, that's <laughs> awesome. I'm going to keep doing that thing. Especially Brad. I mean, you've jumped into like, I mean, we can talk about BTCC. You jumped into that where not only do you have like, you have like new people ballast, but you also have no experience of that championship. You see people doing things ahead of you and you go, ah, well, actually I felt, fine going through that corner but that guy's now gapped to me so i need to throw it in even more so that's where the confidence in the car becomes like a key factor yeah uh 
that that's maybe not the best example um, okay. for me that 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 traumatic weekend okay sorry uh, but but no, but no but on that subject what alex was just talking about where he experienced oversteer for the first time without thinking about it he collected up the car and just continued and you can look at that video either on his youtube channel or on my youtube channel if you want to watch that back um i experienced a similar thing in btcc where it was pouring with rain i i didn't want to break the car because I would have had a, a lot of money to find or a lot of explaining to do to my sponsor if I'd needed to yeah. pay the repair bill. But it was quite, I was absolutely fine driving on, on my instincts and on my wits. And I was never, I was never really in much danger of losing control of the car because subconsciously I was just dealing with all the, the understeer and the overseer that was going on. So even in that situation where in terms of overall pace, I wasn't having a great weekend. I was struggling. I wasn't enjoying the, the driving experience. I could still confidently rely on my own skills to barrel into Paddock Hill bend right. in, in the rain in a, in a situation I've not experienced before in a car I'm not used to and just rely on, on, on my skill to do it. I wasn't kind of frightened of the, of losing control because yeah because the confidence is there in in at least that side of my ability even if the 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 confidence in knowing the exact way to extract the maximum pace from that car wasn't there so it still does tie in with what alex was saying and through all of this it is fair to point out probably that you know there is a sliding scale on this panel of who would be able to deal with the fastest cars you know go, I, I i i i'm fairly confident i would not be able to handle uh, like a f3 car going around Silverstone. I wouldn't even get close to what it could do. I know I'm terrified, even in an indoor cart. I'm like, oh my God, the bridge is going so far. That tyre barrier, it could kill me at any moment. So look, through all these discussions, I am not at any point claiming that karting or sim racing is anywhere near the experience of of driving. But at all the levels of, of racing, people are applying the same kind of basic skills, the same kind of basic intuition that us as racing fans could really tap into to make our driving experience better so i really hope you've enjoyed our discussion for this driver masterclass thank you very much to brad philpop his links are below kyle power his links are below as well and alex van Gene, he does streaming and stuff so we'll we'll make sure that we plug all of that and do go and follow them alex van Gene, he's the biggest uh, attention seeker so at alex van Gene. He's like, oh, come and watch me fly fighter jets on VR. Watch me having a really good time. That's what you do. Yeah, I enjoy it. And often when I'm flying, Kyle is usually in the Discord with us as well. So ah, um, okay. I'm, I'm on an iRacing break for a while. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm on an extended break as well. I might wait until my new wheelbase comes. Um, so I'm flying things. I'm trying yeah. different things. We're having a chat today in my Discord about um, various different games and things that we're playing. So we're enjoying that at the moment. Brilliant. And Kyle Power, at Kyle Power F1, this is how I think you do tweets, Kyle. You go, type, 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 type. No, delete, 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 delete. Type, 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 type. Delete, 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 delete. Ah, I tweet. You usually get the thesaurus out a few times. And to go to there, and then I, yeah, um, I'm a bit old school. I do, I do a tweet every now and then. Yeah, but I think you type 10 and you only let one go. So follow Carl Power F1 for the rage. Follow Brad at Bradley Philpot on Twitter and search for Brad Dude 2K on YouTube or Bradley Philpot and you'll find his stuff there. Uh, I'm 
uh, at Spanners Ready, and we are at Missed Apex F1. Consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. We're now going to go to the second part of the fantastic, I assume, mashup, because it's not been recorded yet. It could be, I mean, it could be terrible, couldn't it? Let's assume it's really good. Tune in for some great tech insight from Matt Trumpets, Craig Scarborough, and Matthew Summerfield. That's coming up right now. All right, and we're back this week to finish talking about the car that will come from the 2022 regulations, and we're joined by Summers F1 and by Scarbs, once again, sitting down to take the time and explain it all in small words for us. So we left off last week, we were talking about the wheel weight deflector, but it seems like to me, and what I found interesting when I actually went and looked at these regulations, because I did go and look at them, was that when they talk about designing, they don't start with the front wing. They don't start with the nose. They actually start with the floor. And it seems like that's where there's some really super big changes. Yeah. I mean, I think this, that the floor is absolutely everything that will be important about the 2022 car. Um, you know, a lot of people are calling it ground effect or a wing car. So what you now have is that the, the floor starts with a ramp section going down and then you have a very short flat section and then a big diffuser area. So it's going very back, very much back to the kind of the Lotus 80s wing car design with big tunnels under the car, creating lots of downforce under the car. There's no skirts um, and you still have very large front and rear wings, but the floor is going to be the key area. The more you work the floor, the more you get downforce from the floor because it comes with such little drag. That means you're going to get all your performance from working that area and then reducing the front and rear wings in order to uh, you know, uh, balance the car out. Now, hang on a second. You said that the front part of the floor is actually going to be ramped down. So similar in profile to, say, like a rear wing beam or something like that. So are we going yep. to see are we going to see high and low downforce floors depending upon the track we're on? I hadn't thought of that. Um, I'm going to have to think off the top of my head. I guess that's theoretically possible. Um, I would guess not. I mean, even uh, when we go back to the, you know, the old ground effects days, because I'm old enough to remember much of that. Um, and even with the current cars, you don't tend to adjust the floor. That's the downforce that you're getting effectively for free. So all you would do is just really trim down your front and rear wings to next to nothing if you wanted to really reduce drag for you know high speed, uh, low downforce tracks. I know, Summers, one of your favorite topics is strakes and fully enclosed holes and slots and stuff like that. Okay, maybe it's not, but I'm just going to say that for, for, for podcast purposes, let's just say. Uh, I want to know how much of that has been written off by the new regulations. Are we still going to see a proliferation of these things in the new floor regulations, or is it now actually impossible for designers to add them where they think they might be appropriate? No, it's not impossible. Um, and certainly when we're talking about strikes, then you will have to consider the uh, the strikes that are going to be mounted on the front edge of the floor in the throat section of the floor, um, which obviously we, we've, we've seen a lot, actually, since the 2017 regs came about. Uh, I think Red, Red Bull perhaps have about nine strikes now on the front edge of their floor, just trying to control um, the airflow rearwards. Uh, we've also got what's called an edge wing. So that comes out from the front edge of the floor, a bit like what we have now is with the axe head of the floor. So it comes out from the the, the side edge of the floor. Um, and then uh, even if you go to look at the renders that F1 produced um, 
alongside the promotional show car, uh, you can see that there, there's a flap section uh, on the edge of the floor. So, you know, the, there is going to be room and scope for the designers to be able to work that area. But obviously, depending on what they're doing on the underside of the floor is probably the most important factor, um, certainly for us to look at um, in comparison to the old regulations because of how different uh, the approach is going to be from from the designers. Okay, well, explain that in a little more detail because you've not yet gotten to big enough words that I can't understand them. Okay, so I think it's just the scope of what they're going to be doing with the floor. So if you think back to like Craig says, when we had uh, the wing style cars, we've got sort of Venturi tunnels and that's sort of the direction that's been been heading in. So if you think of a much larger area underneath the floor with which the designers are, are operating with. Um, and then that obviously is going to change the impact of how they work with these other aerodynamic trinkets that you've mentioned. Okay. So you mentioned Venturi tunnels. Uh, for those who don't know what they are, and I might potentially count myself as one of those, uh, what exactly is a Venturi tunnel? How are they now allowed? And when they obviously weren't before, and how big of a factor will that be in the in the designing of the car? Okay, I'll, oh, sorry, I'll, <laughs> sorry, I thought Craig was going to go on that. Oh, I thought I thought we asked you actually. But no, okay. Um, yeah, so so basically, we're just looking at the fact that um, obviously you've got a large area in which that the 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 airflow flows through. Uh, so you've got a, a throat uh, that effectively is very similar to what the teams have started to head towards with the 2017 regulations, but we've expanded upon upon that uh, with the, the 2022 regulations. It's a much larger area in which the, uh, the, the air will flow through. Um, and it's the design um, of, of that tube, let's say, um, that, uh, that you're flowing the airflow through underneath the underside of the car. So it's just a very different approach. Um, we do see in other single seaters, you know, they have, they have very similar uh, design um, in that respect. And I think that Formula One are moving in that direction because of the wake management issue uh, that Formula One has created over the years. So that's predominantly why we're, we're, we're heading down that route, because the key factor behind the 2022 regulations is to try to reduce the amount of wake that is created by the lead car and the effect that has on the trailing car. Okay, yeah, I mean, so... Sorry, uh, those of you who remember Indy cars in the sort of the 90s and the 2000s, where they would have um, a, a very high inlet to their underfloor, and obviously they had limited tunnels at the back of the car. But you had these fins that effectively formed barge boards uh, inside the, the entrance to the underfloor. And we've got that with the regulations coming up. Now, there's a couple of things that you can do with these, much like they did with the, with the Indy cars back in that era, is you can use them to direct airflow into the main tunnels under the floor, or you can use them to diverge uh, a bit of outwash and get this you know, uh, edge floor effect, which um, has been so important with these Venetian blinds and all of the features they've been working with the barge boards in recent years. So that could be uh, an equally powerful way of working the underfloor on these fins on the inlet now that you don't have any more barge boards. So what you may not have is this inwash, uh, sorry, uh, inboard loaded, outboard loaded front wing, but what you might have is how they arrange these fins on the inlet to the underfloor could actually be whether they're for outwash or for the, the central tunnel. So everyone will have a slightly different view on where they're going to get the maximum downforce, either by the edge of the floor or by the tunnels themselves. So you're going to see teams playing about with them in terms of their position, but the regulations really limits what you can do. You're not going to have lots of slots and add-on bits to these. These just be very simple straight strakes that are fitted to the mouth of the floor. 
Okay, so when you're talking about tunnels, because uh, I'm just trying to visualize yeah. this, you're not talking about like an enclosed circular cross-section kind of a tunnel. You're talking about essentially strakes that mm -hmm. create a tunnel from where the floor starts mm -hmm. um, around where the cockpit is and runs all the way to the uh, end of the car underneath the rear wing. Exactly. So you have an unopened channel under the car and it works like the, the, the inlet's like a bell mouth on a, on a carburetor that smooths it and directs the air in. So you get lots of airflow. Then you accelerate it through the middle section. And then when the floor kicks up, which uh, at the start of the tunnel at the back, or what we would do, normally would call a diffuser, um, that's where you really start to create the downforce. And that's where you get the air accelerating, you know, all the Bernoulli effect and all the other kind of Venturi, you know, basic aerodynamics sort of stuff going on. But because the, the, the um, underfloor is relatively close to the ground, you also get this ground effect, which is obviously what was discovered or exploited for the first time in the late 70s by Lotus with their wing car. So this isn't as pure a wing car as Lotus would have had or the, the other F1 teams had in the late 70s, early 80s. It's still a, yeah, a little bit of a floor and diffuser, but it's easier just to treat it as one big piece. Um, and the strake's just there to divert the airflow and manage the pressure um, under the floor and out the edges of the floor. Okay, well, I think you've hit on something that's really interesting to me because, uh, as you mentioned, this concept was actually banned by the FIA uh, when they used fans and wings and stuff like that. And in general, I had understood it to be banned because the FIA thought it was unsafe to rely on on the downforce being there. What has changed um, that they now suddenly think this is the best idea since sliced bread? I mean, a lot has changed. I mean, we're talking about technology at the, you know, the back end of the 70s and the early 80s when cars were still made completely of aluminium. You know, there wasn't much carbon. There wasn't much wind tunnel work. It wasn't very sophisticated. Um, but also the old uh, wing cars of that era um, created huge amounts of downforce. And that was because they were allowed to have skirts that reached between the Venturi tunnels and the ground. And what would happen, because the car created so much downforce, you needed to run very, very stiff springs uh, the car would barely move on its suspension. So when it hit a curb, the suspension wouldn't deflect. The skirt would lift off the ground and suddenly the car would lose all of its downforce. And in a high downforce corner, a high load corner, as we saw, I think it was 82 at Paul Ricard, the old Paul Ricard circuit. Yeah, the cars just went flying off the circuit in an incredible way. Um, that's different now. You know, yeah, if you look at GP2, F2, F3 cars, Indy cars, uh, even, you know, Le Mans LMP cars, they all run you know, effectively wing underbodies. Um, and it's, it's softer nowadays. You know, teams have got a better understanding of the aerodynamics. The suspension copes much better. No one's using skirts. So they're, they're much less sensitive now to, you know, being knocked about. So I don't think we're going to see the same you know, potential safety issues that we had in the 80s in 2022. So, you know, the world has moved on. And we can get the benefit of the much better format of aerodynamics, which is you know, less wake, less drag, um, which you would require from wings. So um, it's a kind of a win-win situation now. So this sounds like actually a positive development um, in terms of the regulation. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, everyone's been saying this for, for many, many years. We need to go back to you know, shaped underbodies. And um, I think along with lots of other things that they've learned about how the, what makes the cars work, what makes the cars create lots of you know, really dirty, turbulent wake has now been understood. And they're, they're working to get rid of some of the ways that they used to create the regulations, which 
in the past has always been to try and make aerodynamic surfaces smaller and smaller, which ends up meaning that you have wings that are kind of angled upwards like this and are really critical and don't work when they're in turbulence. Now you've got this big, lazy underbody, a big, lazy rear wing, big, lazy front wing, and they'll be much less sensitive to running in, in dirty air because they're not at the edge of, you know, airflow breakup and stalling underneath the surfaces that the uh, recent sort of history of cars have had. So I am loving this. I, I do have a question. As I was looking through the floor regulations, um, I noticed that there was something called a bib and I've never seen that before. What part, what is that? And what part is it going to play in what we were just talking about? The bib is a way of explaining, perhaps you've heard of it as a splitter. Um, the front section underneath the chassis effectively is is what I would classify as the bib. Um, unless, because I haven't read that section of the regulations. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, unless I'm mis- misinterpreting what you mean, but I've heard it called a bib before. I've heard it called a splitter. Uh, there's plenty of different words to explain uh, certain areas of the car. So that's what I yeah. would interpret it without having uh, studied that section of the regs. Yeah, no, the, I mean, the, the bib exists at the moment, um, but what we, um, you don't, you've seen it, but probably don't even talk about it uh, typically. And, you know, you have the, the, what they call the tea tray jutting out from underneath the ray section of the car. Um, that tea tray section is now gone, but the piece above it that formed the V, which I used to call the heel of the monocoque, which kind of went underneath the driver's thighs before the bottom of the car, that V section there is called the bib. And that is actually still in the regulations to split the airflow left to right around the car, which then goes into the underbody. So um, it's, you know, it, it's just a name for a piece that we've always had, um, but they're just regulating it a little bit tighter than it is now. Yeah, I think the interesting thing there is over the last few years, perhaps more so since Tambayasis has been involved with the regulation and the, the regulations and the forming of them, we've started to see a, a, a much more um, eager approach to name things within the regulations. Previously, we didn't have any of that. A lot of the way that you used to interpret the regulations was uh, me and Scarbs and whatnot making up names <laughs> of things um, purely because there was no name for them in the regulations. You know, there never used to be the word diffuser in the regulations. And, and, and now it exists within there. So I think a lot of the way that the regulations are now written out is much more, well, easier to understand, let's put it that way. Okay, well, uh, let's talk briefly then about, uh, I know you talked about the side pods um, going from maybe size zero to size negative one, if such a thing could be thought to exist. Uh, but uh, what about the Coke bottle? You said it might uh, disappear. And, and also, I know it's been interesting to see the different design of the airbox is that going to change significantly as well in relation to the larger side pot inlet openings you've already mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think teams will still want to play about with, with how much they put radiators in the side pods or they put radiators above the engine. You know, if you look at the Alpine, is the extreme example of the uh, centerline cooling concept. Uh, they'll continue to play about with that. Um, and I don't think there's any right or wrong. It's just what teams decide they, they want to do. Um, but I think there is an opportunity with the um, these extra cooling outlet areas now that you really can um, let all of the air out of the side pods much earlier along the car rather than let it go all the way up to the tail of the Coke bottle area. Um, and that really is a hangover from the 2009 regulations that pretty much precluded almost all openings in the side pods. Um, so as much as you see really tiny little side pods and then a bit of a Coke bottle, I think what you'll find now is really tiny side pods and then the vents, and then very little Coke bottle at the end. So the cars will be really narrow at the back. 
Um, and I think that would look, make them look really cool. Um, equally, at the front of the side pods, this change that we've had over recent seasons where you've had the inlet moved higher and creating a bigger undercut underneath it, that's still possible in the regulations. It's a little bit more difficult with some of the radiuses that you have to apply to it, but I still think that's very much what teams will continue to do. And there could still be a benefit of having a large undercut to drive airflow over the top of the diffuser section to whatever bodywork they're allowed to fit around the, uh, the trailing edge of the diffuser. All right. Well, in my continued pursuit of vocabulary in the latest round of regulations, I, I noticed that they also uh, mentioned something called a blister. Now, I think we've already got them, but they seem to now be enshrined in the regulations. What is the purpose of this blister and, and why, why are we seeing it suddenly named formally? Well, I, I would assume that we're talking about on the engine cover, we're talking about the blister that surrounds the airbox. Uh, the, sorry, the inlet plenum around the um, ICE. Um, we've got that already on the Mercedes and the Aston Martin, um, which is just a, a blister that fits over that section in order to help aerodynamically. I assume that's what we're talking about in, in terms of blisters. Um, and, and obviously, the more that we push the bodywork closer to the internal components uh, to, to obviously improve aerodynamics and um, as Craig's already mentioned, because we're going to perhaps have the ability to shrink the the side pods even more, then you know everything is just going to become more and more tightly wrapped um, to the point where you know it will almost look like the, the a skeleton uh, with, with a little bit of skin over the top. I love that description. Uh, sh- shall we talk about the rear wing briefly? I know there's a lot of confusion about the rear wing. I I'm. Like, is the T-wing going to be there? Are we going to still get swan necks and double pylons? Can we have a spoon wing? These are some of the many questions that I have about the rear wing. <laughs> yeah, the rear wing seems to have created quite a lot of questions um, I've noticed on social media since the, the concept car. So uh, the rear wing uh, is very tightly restricted now in how much of the end plate and how the, the, the top rear wing blends into the end plate. So you're not going to have those little sort of front upstands that you have at the moment is going to be very much the, the wing surface will then droop straight down to an end plate, which again is to reduce the, the, the strong turbulence that you get from the wingtip vortices on those wings. Um, so there, but what you do then have is of the beam wing returns, which hasn't been around since ooh, uh, 2017, I think, wasn't it, Matt? 2013. Um, was it 2013? I thought it was, oh yeah, <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> um, and um the other things, DRS will still be there. So the flap will still open. You can still have a pod um, doing your DRS work, or you can have it built into the wing if you want as well, which I think some concepts have been shown around that. Um, the um, other thing is mounting the wing. So yes, you can have still one or two pylons supporting the rear wing, um, but equally now you've got a beam wing, you may decide that maybe that's aerodynamically not what you want to do. Um, T-wing's definitely gone. Um, any other add-ons like uh, monkey seats, that's all kind of been properly written out of the regulations now. Um, so I think you will see teams maybe struggling a little bit to create enough downforce when they need to with this, um, with the rear wing for a high downforce circuit. 
Yeah, I think that the, the the main thing about the rear wing on this car, and, and predominantly with the, the design of the car in general, is there's a lot of aesthetics gone into um, some of the decisions as well. Um, as Craig mentioned, obviously, that the rear wing is going to look very different to what we've seen in the past or what we've seen in other series in, in many respects because of the shaping uh, where the, the wing planes meet the, the end plates. Um, as Craig's already mentioned as well, one of the biggest things I saw uh, on social media was people Un- mis- misinterpreting the fact that DRS was uh, going to be gone, uh, which isn't obviously is still going to be present on the cars. Although Ross has mentioned the fact that they will try to phase it out if it doesn't appear to be providing the the kind of uh, racing experience that we need uh, with the new car. So, you know, it, it's there to start with, but it could be phased out over time if indeed we do get the amount of close racing that the, the rules obviously are looking to, to introduce. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think it just adds um, an aesthetic to the car, the way that these rear, this rear wing is set out. So I think it makes it look a, a, a bit more futuristic, which is, I think is the intent of the regulation. Fair enough. And gentlemen, there is an elephant in the room and it is 18 inches. We've not talked about the wheels and the tires and we've only barely mentioned the brake ducts. So can I ask your opinion, how big an influence will it be on the car to have these larger wheels and especially uh, with regards to the sidewall and the stiffness of the sidewall in terms of the aerodynamics of the car? I mean, this is going to be absolutely huge. I mean, introducing 18-inch wheels in the low-profile tyres is almost as big enough regulation change for one year as you would need to then throw aerodynamic changes on top of such a substantial scale that they're getting for 2022. This creates a huge headache for the teams. I know they've done some testing, um, but, you know, you've got the suspension you need to understand. You need to understand the aerodynamics of the larger wheel because obviously the current big balloon tire is almost you know uh 50 of the wheel is um you know just a big floppy balloon tire moving around squidging as it goes up and down bumps now you've got a much smaller stiffer side will move around less in some respects the aerodynamics will like it a lot more because they've got a lot less um unknown factors in terms of flex and movement uh, to contend with equally they've got um, a much larger static, uh, sorry, a much larger flatter face to the inner and the outer sides of the wheels with the wheel fairings and the brake ducts. So their job will be made somewhat easier in that respect, but you know it's still a huge piece of work. And then you've got all the internal aerodynamics in terms of getting the brakes cooled and seeing what benefit you can get to try and shoot some air out of that wheel somehow. Um, again, not really quite sure how that's going to be possible with the new regs, but it's an area for the teams to play with. And we also have to consider the the fairings as well that are going to be on the oh. the outside of of the the wheel as well, which return after an absence since two thousand and nine. Obviously, we're getting them in a very different um, design concept to what we had in two thousand and nine, but they are obviously going to have an impact. And and as we as you've already mentioned, most of what has been done here is to reduce wake uh, and change the wake profile of the car. It's all about managing the the car itself and also the trailing car as it approaches it. So all of these things, obviously the aerodynamics will, will effectively not like in many respects because that for years they've been using some of these tricks uh, from up their sleeve to be able to make downforce. And now all of a sudden, you know, the, a big change, like you say, of the 18-inch uh, wheels will obviously mean that they have to rethink um, their approach to, to it. But it also then means not having to think in the same 
realm as what they have in the past. There might be new ideas that they can throw at things that they hadn't previously been able to do. So I think that area could be quite a fascinating area for for development side of uh, of things. Excellent. Well, I think we are at an end to our journey. Um, I did notice when I was looking through the regulations um, that the number of listed components, the components that the teams are absolutely responsible for, seems to have been pared way down. And I did find a very interesting mention of a bodywork display panel, which makes me, as a fan of WEC, also quite excited. But I wanted to wrap up by asking you, these regulations all had a very, very specific point, which was to make the racing better, to make the driver more important. And in fact, they even start out with predictions that saying that in a two car length, uh, roughly the trailing car loses 45% of downforce. And they were predicting that it would now just be five to 10% of downforce loss. It seems based on the season as well, that Pirelli have solved the tire problem. We've seen lots of following at much closer distances without the tires entirely going off. So do you think, in your opinion, that these regulations will be successful, given the fact that the teams are basically like a gang of surly teenagers that just simply ruin all the nice things that the FIA tries to do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the, the the eventual effect from what the teams add to the, the bodywork will reduce that, you know, or increase the downforce loss as the car gets closer. Um, it will still be much, much better than it is currently. So I think the regulations will end up allowing cars to follow much closer. I think that the sad downside to that is with such major regulation changes, the field spread will be so much bigger now that, you know, the teams that get it right to the teams that haven't quite got it right. Um, and it's going to be a while before the teams are probably, some of the cars are actually uh, performance wise close enough to actually really test the regulations. Can you actually overtake a car that is, you know, you're marginally faster there? Uh, without having to resort to, you know, the artificiality of DRS. So um, I think it will take a while for, you know, the jury to to, to come back with the, the, the full answer to that. But I think it will definitely be much better than than we've had so far. And I'd just echo those sentiments, really. You have to remember that this is probably the biggest rule change in the sport's history in, in terms of um, the, the aerodynamic side of things, it tied in with changing uh, the, the, the size of the tyres and wheels and the effect that that has on suspension. You know, it's just a huge, huge change. And as Craig mentioned, you know, there are going to be uh, teams that have done better than others uh, when it comes to redesigning the cars. On top of that, you have to remember that we've now got a sliding scale in terms of wind tunnel and CFD. And we've also got the cost cap implications as well. Um, and then you have to think about how much have teams given up uh, in terms of development on the 2022 car because they've continued to develop the 2021 cars. You know, it's a huge undertaking what's going on here. But I do think the net result will be better. It's just that we might have to wait a little while for it to all come together and, and make it the, the kind of thing that we want to see. So once again, it will be in the hands of the racing gods to make interesting, unusual, and frankly, bizarre things happen. Well, I can't say that's a surprise. I will say, to me, uh, these regulations seem like they are dancing on the edge of being overly prescriptive. And it seems like, uh, based on Bonato's recent comments, that they might revisit them, that I'm not the only one that is concerned about that. Because I do see that the prototypical nature of the series 
is a fundamental part of it. And I, I understand the need to save money. I understand everything that's going on here. But I do hope they keep a very close eye on it and they don't lose what makes it magic. That said, thank you both so much for coming on. I cannot, again, say how lucky we were to get this kind, to get the both of you together to talk about this. It's not happening anyplace else. And it's, it's an honor to have you on the show. Once again, Summers, where can we find you? Best place, as always, is over on Twitter, and it's Summers F1. And Scarbs, likewise, where can we find you? Again, Twitter's the starting point, uh, at Scarbs Tech. Thank you both so much. Please look for links to all of the things mentioned in this in the bottom of the show notes. Well, that wraps up our driver segment and our tech segments. I hope you're having a good summer holiday, and I hope that that was worthy of your attention to entertain you a little bit during this dearth of Formula One. I was so, so pleased that Scarbs was willing to jump on and, you know, he jumped straight out on the call going, oh, I've missed you guys. And I went, ah, oh, yeah, well, I'd, I'd not thought to ask him because he was doing all the F1 TV stuff. And I don't know, once people are doing that, I mean, definitely like the Sky team, you can't get them on interviews talking about F1. I don't, I don't think, I'm pretty sure... But I think twice we've got the answer of, like, they can only talk about F1 through Sky. And I think a lot of broadcasters will have that. So I'd assumed Scarbs was uh, was fully out of reach. Uh, but it was lovely for him to to jump on. And I know me, him and um, him and Matthew Summerfield have a lot of mutual respect for each other as well. They, they are, I think, without doubt, you know, the two most experienced, best F1 tech guys out there at the moment. So, so, so proud that Miss Apex can host them both. And in fact, I, I am I am constantly stunned by the people who will come uh, and speak to us. The fact that we've had Alex Brundle and Jack Nichols, who I'm trying to get back on again, uh, regularly come and speak to us al- alongside the, the likes of Matthew Carter and Joe Sayward as well. I, I think I should be more necky, shouldn't I? I should be more punchy, more arrogant and go, yeah, people might know who Miss Apex are. People might have heard of us. I was at a wedding couple of weeks back and uh, we, the wedding actually was right in earshot of Hangar Straight and Stowe so you could hear it was the Ford Festival you could hear the cars do you uh, Julia take so yeah uh, anyway I was there chatting and you get talking about what you do and I'm a freelance presenter I do podcasts oh yeah what about uh, Formula One? Oh, really I'm an F1 fan what, what podcast is it and I say oh Missed Apex and the, the guy goes oh I've heard of you guys. <gasps> wow, fame at last, I thought. Yeah, you're the podcast that gets, the, the for F1's sake podcast, makes fun of all the time. Yep, 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 that's us. <laughs> but, you know, our audience and our reach is growing. I think increasingly people do know who we are. And I have noticed one real step up in our kind of career progression, our project progression, which is that people are taking the time to actively reject us and tell us to bog off instead of just ignoring us. So we do get, you know, uh, oh, hey, guys, no, no, sorry, uh, we can't. But we, yeah, but, you know, good work. Like, they know who we are enough to tell us to bog off, which is nice. So let me know, who do you think we should try and interview on Missed Apex Podcast? Because one of the things that I've loved, one of the things I've used this and other projects for 
is an opportunity to go and reach out and speak to a lot of different people. Love having our regulars on, but it's always great to have someone new. You know, all right. Where, where can you email me? Yeah, that's a good question. Spanners at mistapex.net. If you do feedback at mistapex.net, it goes to me and Matt. Somebody emailed me saying that they wanted to start a Matt Trumpets fan club or some such thing. But you can email Matt, matt at mistapex.net. He's probably the second best one. Or Kyle. Or Chris. Nah, not Chris. Um, ah, He's been around a long time, hasn't he? You can't email any of those guys, but you can follow them on Twitter. We always have everybody's links to their social media in the show notes below. So just have a scroll or a swipe or a flick or whatever it has it is you have to do to get to your show notes and uh, and go and click and go and give those guys a follow it means a lot to us and do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash missed apex gonna see you in belgium next i'll be in a shed you'll probably be on your sofa but the race cars will be in belgium and then at 8 p.m uk time that night we will give you a race review we'll do it live and you can come and you can come and join us and watch it live too and call me a turnip. Until we see you next time, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market hi I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.